Welcome to Black and White and Red All Over, a podcast on race, gender, and identity. I'm Donald Quist, and I'm Black. And I'm Bailey Galen Moore, and I'm super white. (laughs) In each episode, we're going to be discussing current events, offering some context and historical background surrounding the topics on race, gender, and identity. Also, we'll be giving some recommended readings to help broaden and continue allyship. Hey, Donald. Hey, Bailey. This is uh, episode two. How are you feeling? Very nice. All right. We just made two film references back to back. Um, What was your film reference? Uh, mine was dazed and confused. What was my film reference? The incomparable Borat. What's a Borat? <laughs> Nothing. What's a Borat with you? You're so jokey. <laughs> I do have. I have. A, I have a joke for you. Okay. <laughs> I'm uh, nervous. Don't be nervous. Okay. What's the joke? What's black and white and red all over? What is black and white and red all over, Bailey? Penguin Books. Both books about penguins and Penguin Publisher. <laughs> that's pretty That's pretty good. That's Thanks. pretty good. I came up with it five minutes before we recorded. I also came up with this one. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? I think so. The setup is... <sighs> what's black and white and red all over? What? Norm going to college. Norm, our, our dog? Yeah. Well, why? <laughs> <laughs> well, you always joke about Norm not being a real dog. He's actually an anti-dog. You think he's a person dressed up in a dog suit. I'm just saying, Norm, I've never heard him bark, and he looks suspiciously. He moves suspiciously, like a man in a dog costume. Well, he might actually be... <laughs> what if he's Norm MacDonald in a dog costume? Because that's who he's named after, you know? Why was he named after Norm MacDonald? You know why? Because he was my first celebrity crush. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, weird. I was in Norm MacDonald's book club for a while, so it makes sense that you would think Norm is a... A learned animal. Yeah. yeah. Or person in an animal costume. That's right. I apologize for kind of sneering at that one of my early celebrity crushes was Rosie O'Donnell so I'm sure people would bat an eye at that Um, but she was really cute in a league of their own yeah she was a total hottie she was she was a Betty we just recently watched Clueless so we're bringing Betty back you know what she's actually a legit literal Betty in uh, that movie with John Goodman the Flintstones yeah yeah the Flintstones (laughs) she was Betty Rubble that is correct yeah Uh, legit Betty. This is a great um, contribution to our sub-podcast about movies. We do talk about film a lot. Which um, is funny, because I don't like like films a lot. It's hard for me to watch them you and know, stay interested. It's getting harder for me, too, as I get older. It's, That's what she said. It's harder for me to watch films as I get older, is what she said? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's like two hours, you know. Who's got time for that? But, you know. She probably does. Oh, boy. 
Um, and so we we uh, we had some pretty good feedback on the last episode. Um, one thing is that your transition. Well, I had one more joke for you. Okay, I actually had two. Two more? Yeah. What's black and white and red all over? What? This podcast. And my second one was, what's black and white and red all over? What? A newspaper. OG. Duh. <laughs> OG. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. Okay. So that was it. All That's all I had for my notes. Um, besides like a little bit of progress with maybe some uh, hope for Carrie Brownstein's friendship. That's right. We found out we had a mutual friend, a poet from Portland, mm-hmm. um, solidifying my original assumption that Carrie Brownstein was friends with everyone except us. It seems to be the way of things, um, but we're going to work on that. And we're going to try to reach out to this mutual poet friend of ours and see what we can Yeah, our next step. Yeah. Make that three degrees of separation or two. Three to two or two to one. Listeners, if you want to provide feedback, this is something I'm not entirely clear on. If you have degrees of separation, do you include yourself and the person in those degrees? So are we three degrees of separation or two degrees? Is it when you say six degrees of separation? I think she's two degrees because the person that we know mutually would be one, right? And then they are? Are we our own degree? That's what I'm wondering. So if That's you're a huge ontological question. Deep. <laughs> if you're listening, let us know. Um, we've been going back and forth on that. Um, on what? On what? Oh, yeah. Yeah, how do you count degrees of separation? Yeah. We should ask 98 degrees. <laughs> Another announcement <laughs> that we had was... Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, famous... Famous band, 98 Degrees, from 1999. That's right. Uh, Anyway, uh, another important announcement was you, there was an an anonymous donor buying 10 of your books. That's right. Harbors. Um, Mm -hmm. So your publisher, Aust Press, A-W-S-T. Aust or Aust, one of those. Yeah. Um, If you share their link or go to their site and email them, um, I believe it's both. Uh, you have a chance to win one of ten copies. Um, Harbors was an important book for me as a white person, especially learning about my own privilege and also what it's like for a black man in both America and Thailand since Donald lived in Thailand for five years. Yeah. 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 It's, I'm still very much stunned and uh just very grateful for how this book i wrote a few years ago is still connecting with people still um finding new ways into people's hands so yeah uh be sure to if you haven't ever read the book or if you'd like a free copy be sure to check with oust press awsd um on all their various social media and yeah reach out to them i'm very thankful to uh the anonymous donor that bought those copies um it's really flattering and i'm really grateful and i hope that the book uh can do some work um for people so yeah anything Uh, else those were my updates if we're i guess we can move on to like sort of the response that we've gotten from the previous episode sure 
Um, it's been very positive, but uh, listening to it again, I just wanted to give some apologies for mispronunciations that I've made. Um, specifically, there was one in the last episode where I was talking about uh, chattel slavery, um, and I think I called it Chantel slavery, um, which is super embarrassing. And apologies, I am prone to mispronunciations. I think it comes from reading a lot, but not often having a chance to speak or talk about these ideas until I got into the PhD program here at the University of Missouri. Um, so if I mispronounce things, uh, feel free to like send us a message, reach out to us, uh, let me know. Um, and yeah, I'll try to do better. I had a late uh, critical theory professor, late meaning she passed away, mm -hmm. but she said if there's ever a word that you don't know how to pronounce but you've seen it time and time again, it's probably because you just read it too many times. So That, that makes me feel a lot better, um, and I think that's definitely true. Well, we all know the real reason is mis you're just pronouncing stuff to make everyone else feel better, just taking one for the team. I, I wish that were true. And you know what? I'll say, sure. Yeah, I'll, the jig is up. <laughs> yeah, sure. I wish. Um, I also want to uh, point out that we just recently celebrated Juneteenth. Um, and I kind of wanted to bring something to the listeners' attention. Um, on Friday, a call to action was released by Black cultural leaders um, in the arts. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to be a part of this list um, and this call to action. Um, it's the black, it's blackartistsforfreedom.com if you visit um, and you'll read the statement. But basically, many of us in the field, different fields of cultural production, which we'll talk about later in this podcast, um, we just wanted to issue a statement about the possibility of imagining black freedom what would that look like what would making cultural institutions like academia and publishing more anti-racist look like um so again that's blackartistsforfreedom.com um you might have seen it mentioned in the new york times um at variety um but yeah give it a give it a google and a look honored to be a part of that list give yeah. it a google give it a, yeah, give a, quick, it a good old-fashioned google quick goog <laughs> I don't think that's that what the kids good. say. That's what that's Beck not told what the me. kids. That's Beck did not tell you that. He did. He did. Your son Beck told me that. He did not. He did. He said. All I'm going to ask him that. Don't. <laughs> I knew it. You don't need to. <sighs> He'll deny it. Hey, question: How yeah. many people messaged you on Juneteenth that just saying Happy Juneteenth that normally would not message you? This was probably the biggest Juneteenth that I've ever encountered. Um, I've never seen the holiday celebrated to this extent. So it was, I got a fair amount of happy Juneteenth. It was nice. I'm going to be honest. I did not know about Juneteenth until this mm. year. So yeah, like this is again, just me learning and expanding along with so many white people this mm -hmm. year. Um, but I, 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 I'm with you. Yeah, <laughs> I had a friend um, who said he got 53 emails Whoa. 
And he's never once had anyone say happy Juneteenth to him before. That's pretty cool. It's just bananas. So very cool. Um, Yeah. Another thing uh, we forgot to do last episode was give you some uh, ideas or book recommendations uh, related to white fragility. So I actually have a few that I borrowed from the New York Times. Um, after White Fragility, which is number one again on their nonfiction list, we have two by Yujama Oluo, I believe is how you say her name. So you want to talk about race. Three, uh, How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And he also wrote number four, which was stamped from the beginning. And at some point, I'd love to talk about all of these books. Um, I think especially after such a positive um, response to yeah. the first two podcasts. This is something that we're committed to, yeah. um, especially since we did get several Patreon donors, way more than expected. Uh, so a big shout out and much thanks to them, which include Adam and Rose Grabowski, Catherine Bunny, Graham Wood, Kathleen Cuppet, Stephanie Spung, and we had a, a couple of anonymous donors as well. Uh, much thanks to you. Um, a few of them wanted to do just a one-time donation. So if that's something you guys are interested in, um, just slide into our DMs and we can set that up in the most comfortable way possible. And uh, one of our donors, Liz, Jack, and Carolyn Austin, the Austin family, just wanted to um, say many thanks to you guys. You guys were our first Patreon donors. Um, Carolyn right now is undergoing treatments for leukemia, so we're sending some extra love her way. Um, she's a real cool dude and a huge light, so, uh, I was actually just talking to them the other day, trying to set something up, like a GoFundMe up for Liz, Mm -hmm. um, to help with these extra costs that insurance isn't covering, and she had to go do something, so Carolyn and I were going over uh what wish she wants to do for make a wish that's cool and the top thing in her list i love this is ice skate with jonathan venice from queer eye <laughs> yeah cool very cool because <laughs> he's really into ice skating haven't you seen his instagram no he uh, loves ice i'll skating. check it out now yeah yeah you definitely <laughs> should um, and also to stay at the plaza for a few nights. So I thought awesome. that was so cute. That is cool. Um, and then I'll provide a link to the Austin family's GoFundMe in our description if anyone's interesting and interested in helping Carolyn and her fight against leukemia. Yeah. Um, and just so you know, we've added new Patreon pledges ranging from $2 to $100 a month with respective benefit tiers. Um, and that's benefit tiers. <laughs> tiers of benefit um, and they help us with everything from website and domain fees to potentially helping us get recording equipment um, all patreon donors get to enjoy some delightful practice reels featuring me and bailey diving into the non-existent world of phone audio engineering and uh, we'll have some of these clips up for patreon donors hopefully later this week yeah yeah um, and we'll provide our patreon link in the description if any of you are interested in donating um, between our new pledge ranges. Mm -hmm. And with that, Donald, are you ready to dive into the depths of whiteness, the publishing industry, and what's buzzing in your earbuds? In my earbuds. Yeah, not not to be confused with the 1995 film Air Bud. 
the film. <laughs> That's definitely the a classic film. film. Um, yeah, I think that yeah, Airbud. I'm pretty sure it's on also, the American. I have film no Institute. idea if it was filmed in 1995. Oh, you just pulled a a date out of your head. If you want to call it my head, sure. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Okay, so I'm still listening to the fourth record um, from Run the Jewels, uh, the rap duo comprised of LP and Killer Mike. The album RTJ4 was released during the height of Black Lives Matter demonstrations following the murder of George Floyd, Dre Jean, Sean Reed, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Aubrey. I'm adverse to using the word timely to describe the arrival of RTJ4, and that word is so often used to promote art by black and indigenous people of color, while also presenting their work as their work on issues of prejudice and injustice as something like a fad. Um, timely isn't the word to express how much RTJ4 speaks to the cultural and political moment in which it appeared, or how it expresses the culmination and continuation of systems of oppression. One song in particular stood out to me on the first listen. Uh, it's called Walking in the Snow. And I recognized many of my thoughts and emotions in Killer Mike's verses. I'm gonna share some of them with you now. Killer Mike says, and every day on evening news, they feed you fear for free. And you so numb, you watch the cops choke out a man like me until my voice goes from a shriek to whisper, I can't breathe. And you sit there in the house on couch and watch it on TV. The most you give is a Twitter rant and call it a tragedy. But truly the travesty, you've been robbed of your empathy, replaced it with apathy. I wish I could magically fast forward the future so then you can face it and see how fucked up it'll be. Now, the lyrics were on repeat in my headphones for days as I followed social media hashtags like hashtag publishing paid me and hashtag black in the ivory that demonstrated how difficult it is for a person of color to move through white institutions. Killer Mike's voice played and echoed between my ears on a quiet walk shortly after my mother called to tell me about the fatal shooting of Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta on June 12th. I heard the music as it reflected on how more than a third of the lives lost in fatal police shootings each year are black, and how maddening this statistic is when you consider that black people make up less than 14% of the U.S. population. Walking in the snow, and especially the aforementioned lyrics, speak to many of my fears as a black man, and my frustration with the prevalence of empty rhetoric and useless platitudes whenever tragedies that gain national attention recenter matters of system, systemic racism. I saw hundreds of statements from organizations announcing their recommitment to diversity and allyship in the publishing industry and academia, the institutions by which I struggle to support myself and family financially. Walking in the snow stayed on repeat as I scrolled through hundreds of black boxes on Instagram, hundreds of listenings and learnings, and social media rants about equality. I cued the song when Ugandan writer Hope Wabuki 
posted screenshots on Twitter of a private email exchange between her fellow board members at the National Book Critics Circle. The post showed that other board members objected to releasing a racial equality statement that included the fact that white gatekeepers have continually stifled black voices. In the leaked email, one member stated that he had seen, quote, far more of white people helping black writers than of black people helping white writers, end quote. And perhaps he hadn't listened hard enough to testimonies from black and indigenous people of color, authors and scholars. While reading Wabuki's response to questions about her resignation, I heard the RTJ refrain, just got done walking in the snow, God damn that motherfucker's cold. Wabuki said, it is not possible to change these organizations from within, and the backlash will be too dangerous for me to remain. I think of the song now whenever I think about the ways institutions that benefit and profit from sharing black stories so often reinforce the ways white supremacy devalues diverse narratives. I conjure the image of walking through snow as I continue pushing through, trudging through, blanketing whiteness so heavy it often obstructs my vision. And it's cold, man. It's fucking freezing. It's dangerous for me to keep walking through all the snow. It might stop my heart. But I try to heat myself with the belief that in all that whiteness, I might gather enough to shape some kind of shelter for others. Part of me knows it is impossible for me to change academia or publishing. My teaching and writing will never plow enough to resolve the oppressive foundations on which these institutions rest. However, I'm compelled to try, and my work urges others to try too. If more of us can't change and restructure higher education literature to ensure the progressive sentiments of these institutions are met with progressive action, then I hope the peers and allies I find among the snow will work with me to found newer, warmer, more anti-racist ways to educate and publish. Thanks, Donald. Thank you. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Oh. Sorry they're heavy this week. Yeah. So I guess my question for you is, what are some ways that we can start reconfiguring the foundations of academia and publishing to help create this warmer world? So we were talking about this earlier. Um, well, I kind of hinted to this. Uh, and I'm, I've been thinking about it. Money. And I know I'm a little bit torn on this because, like, I also am sort of opposed to capitalism. Uh, <laughs> well, like hyper-capitalism. Yeah, specifically hyper-capitalism. But money could lead to greater... Or I guess it can lead to decreasing the gaps and the disparities between social and... Uh, racial groups, um, more scholarship money. I am at the University of Missouri because they had a commitment to bringing in students of color with fellowships. So I'm here on a fellowship that covers me for five years. Um, they committed to that. I would like to see more of that. Um, Especially... In publishing, so with publishing, hashtag publishing paid me, yeah. we saw the disparity between white 
mm-hmm. authors and authors of color. Yes. Um, so I think just that hashtag resurfacing might be a good. Yes. Like publishing paid me was a, a huge moment because. And shout out to the white authors that spilled the tea um, and gave us the numbers that they were actually getting paid for their book advances. Yeah, that took um, a lot of courage because it, it, it might did. affect their future contracts. It, it really might. But because of their honesty, um, it allowed writers like me to know what was available. What your worth um, was. What Yeah, what my worth is. Um, so, is. What? Sorry, is, not was. Oh, I'm sorry, what my worth is. No, I um, said I know. what my All worth right. was. <laughs> um, so it just allowed me... Um, so I would like to see more opportunities like that in publishing, um, more sa- like safe spaces like Cambilio fiction. Um, so retreats for people of color, um, and also in academia, there is title nine and there are title nine task force, um, at some schools. I would like to see more task forces that are dedicated to racial issues, um, if you type in the name of your school, um, black at whatever institution you attend, you'll probably see a hashtag for it. Um, after the black and the ivory hashtag, there was a black at Mizzou hashtag. And I spent a lot of time reading through that, seeing um, just some of the things that students of color were experiencing on the campus I attend and where I teach. Um, stories about black students having cotton balls thrown at them, just awful things. And I kept wanting there to be some type of structure that would protect these students, some type of penalty for the students that did this. Um, So I would like to see more accountability put into the structure of every institution. Like what happens when students experience racism, then what? Um, we can talk all day about diversity and wanting these things, but what is the penalty for not holding each other accountable? Um, and so, yeah, I would I would like to see that. Um, and a measure of education put into those penalties. So I think those are ways to potentially help. Yeah, I think baby steps yeah or not or burn it big down. steps yeah, giant or, steps yeah or giant so, steps <laughs> what about bob or john coltrane <laughs> that's right giant steps uh okay well a lot of what you're saying especially about the publishing industry um reminds me of what i'm going to be talking about today in regard to d'angelo's book white fragility this is the second part of our podcast regarding white fragility, but really I'm going to be talking about an anthropologist that she mentions in the chapter racial triggers for white people. Um, It's just a small portion of the book. And then I'm going to dive a little bit into his theory and add some more to how it relates to white fragility. So the anthropologist Pierre Bourdieu, we're mostly going to be talking about his concept of habitus, field, and capital. D'Angelo explains Bourdieu's concept of habitus in regard to white supremacy as the result of socialization, 
the repetitive practices of actors and their interactions with each other and with the rest of their social environment. Through cyclical patterns, socialization produces and reproduces thoughts, perceptions, expressions, and actions. In other words, we can look at habitus as an individual's approach and how they perceive, interpret, and respond to any given social situation. These social situations can be view viewed as Bordeaux's idea of fields, which can change depending on the time of day, our jobs, our friends, etc., etc. Capital is the social value or cultural capital within each given field. Like habitus changing within a social environment, capital can shift within the field. We can look at capital as negotiations of power, and regardless of whatever field we are active in, race, gender, and identity will always be at play, and they are negotiated automatically. Again, this is just a brief section of the chapter, but I wanted to dissect it further with a few things I remember learning about Bordeaux. On top of concepts like habitus, field, and capital, Bordeaux also discusses reversals and happiness. He explains how happiness results from maximizing your symbolic power or having the comfort of your first habitus, making the distinction that you cannot have both unless you happen to be born at the top of the hierarchy. Most of the time, we are climbing the hierarchical ladders, and as we move up, we must transform habitus to meet the demands of the new level on the hierarchy. This reminds me of black code switching. The process of adapting to new linguistic codes and patterns depending on the social context. Code switching is often misidentified as black people trying to fit into white culture, but in reality, it is black people simply trying to survive within it. Bourdieu argues that we cannot bring our old habitus with us. For white fragility, this means more and more discomfort is added to the weight carried by the black people within any given field rooted in white supremacy or more simply, all fields. Philosophy can often make the meaning behind elevated words feel clinical, perhaps obfuscated to the point that people don't see the underlying emotions that give them foundation. It's important to remember that what's at stake here is the ability to find happiness. Wardu also writes about reversals. A reversal means taking cultural values and switching it in the interests of one's own circumstance. The person tries to overturn accepted hierarchical structures, playing up the quality and significance of what they can attain. The issue is people don't believe in reversals. So for D'Angelo, reversal is clouded in white fragility. When supremacy influences each field we are engaged in, it means those at the bottom of the hierarchy have a grim chance of climbing it or are stamped from the beginning, as Ibram Kendi would say. To me, it feels like reversals allow white progressives, people like me, to go on with any given hierarchy, knowing they have privilege in the large majority of any social and political field. And this is what perpetuates uh, the narratives mass-produced in the publishing industry, which are historically white narratives. What's more interesting is how publishing tries to make up for it. For instance, a widely read literary magazine which will go unnamed, made a call for submissions for Black voices in the height of protests around the world. The magazine stated they valued Black voices and wanted to make them a priority, offering a direct email for authors of color to send letters 
Instead of having to hassle with Submittable, the go-to submission site most literary magazines use. After being influenced by the new Run the Jewels album, Donald sent the magazine an email. A journal so influential in our field that he chose to send his writing there over the New York Times opinion section. And then, silence. Now, the nice thing about Submittable is each writer will get a form letter stating they have received a piece, an acknowledgement of some sort, any sort. Though the journal surely didn't mean to perpetuate further tension, the silence reinforces the fact that Black voices are not essential to respond to right now. The silence makes the call for submission feel more like taking advantage of Black voices to increase their traffic or their readership, placing a Black narrative on a pedestal while still reinforcing subtle power paradigms within the publishing field. The worst part about this? If I'm to call the journal out, I would be doing my partner a disservice. It would paint him as argumentative or irate, reinforcing stereotypes so that the editors that are surely a part of the National Book Critics Circle, the top of the hierarchy, which gives accolades to writers, allowing them to move up in the field. So what am I to do? It's been difficult washing hashtags like publishing paid me or black in the ivory because the publishing world is abruptly unfolding racism I wasn't aware of, or if I'm really being honest, racism I didn't confront because I didn't even know how to confront my own privilege. And as the numbers for black versus white publishing cont contracts poured across Twitter and Facebook, it made the idea that black people have to work twice as hard for half as much into a visceral reality. So Donald, um, when you think of all this with Bordeaux yeah. in the publishing industry, is there something that you'd want to add to that? I, I want to point out that that phrase that you just uh, concluded with, working twice as hard for half as much, that was probably one of the most important lessons my mother ever taught me when I was pretty young. Um, she told me, Donna, you'll have to work twice as hard for half as much. Um, and so far, I'm, I haven't seen anything to counter that. Um, thanks for sort of summarizing a lot of the things I was feeling and thinking. Um, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. Um, publishing paid me, uh, Black in the Ivory, coming, coming off of that and then being able to write a piece and send it to just not hear anything. Um, at least just a message saying we got it, you know? Uh, yeah, it just, it, it didn't feel good. It just didn't, I don't know, it just didn't feel good. Um, on the surface, it may seem like it's not a big deal, but considering yeah. everything that's unfolded, yeah. it's just like, you really didn't take the time to think mm -hmm. that through, even just a right. form letter. Yeah, I was like, damn, bro. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of stung. Um, and it's cool that uh, we brought Bordeaux into this because uh, I'm a fan of many of Bordeaux's theories, um, specifically theories involving the field of cultural production. Um, you have a book? An yes, academic book yeah. coming out. Um, so, yeah, I have an academic book coming out with uh, one of my mentors, Rhonda Knight, about fields of cultural production and fandom. Um, and so 
excited to see that come into the world. Um, when that finally does get published, I will spill some tea about what some things I perceived um, in my experience trying to get an academic book um, as a young black scholar who doesn't have a PhD. Um, but that I'm not messing my publication up. So that'll be a later episode. That'll be down the line, right? Yeah. We'll yeah. Be- <laughs> I mean, the contracts are signed, bud. But- the contracts are signed, but still, I'll you know, until I hold that book, <laughs> you know, you're not gonna hear anything from me. It's it's gonna be fine. Um, but yeah, so I'm just I'm curious to ask you. Do you think there are ways to go about? Okay, are there ways for the publishing industry, in your opinion, to go about championing black stories in a way that actually decreases some of the disparities between white writers and black writers? Are there opportunities to change the industry that you've witnessed? I don't know, man. You're much more involved in the industry than I am because you've had a couple of books and I've had a handful of essays published so it's like I mean I think that was my original question to you Mm. is how do we yeah in academia and publishing yeah so but I can't basically what you said I don't know I I Mm. think it's deconstructing okay the chains of white supremacy within the publishing industry i mean you have white people in the national book critics circle Mm -hmm. who are essentially saying well really it's white people that have been helping black people which really is just a form of white fragility because it's not acknowledging the fact that there are there's systemic racism rooted inherently within each given field Mm -hmm. It just, the the first thing to me, I guess, would be, I guess I had to think about it before I actually answered it, but would be acknowledging the mistakes that are made instead of avoiding it altogether. I mean, that's what D'Angelo would say, I think, just based off of what I gathered from her book is avoiding these things saturated in white guilt and instead saying thank you for the learning opportunity opportunity and making steps forward awesome does that make sense i think so yeah um, i mean really i and and it's not going to be like well the old people have to die because mm -hmm. systemic racism is inherent in all of our generations it's not just old people being dicks it's also young people not realizing they're being dicks right so yeah um systemic racism it's I do hear that a lot, like, oh, we just got to wait for the old people to die. All the bad old racists. Um, Not addressing, like, white supremacy is in everything um, in our current way of life, especially in North America. It's in the language you use. Baldwin talks about escaping the United States to Paris, and that was the first time he realized that white supremacy was inherent to the language with which he uses to describe himself. It's in our words and our descriptions. Um, It's in how we communicate. It's at the basest level. Um, And so sometimes I've, well, not sometimes, especially in this past week, I've been thinking a lot about um, Wabuki's statement, Hope Wabuki's statement as 
she resigned from the National Book Critics Circle. Um, these organizations cannot be changed. Um, and then I wonder if America, a place founded with white supremacy in its constitution, like when the founding fathers said all men are created equal, they weren't even thinking about people of color or women. Like that wasn't, that wasn't even in the frame of reference. Um, can a country founded that way ever be changed? Well, maybe it's like this, like why burn your bridges if you can blow your bridges up? Mm-hmm. So it's not like these institutions won't work. It's we have to deconstruct the institutions in order to make new ones. I see. Does that make sense? So like yeah. reformulate how we approach the narratives that we share. Yeah. I read an I I read a statistic in D'Angelo's book that was something like and I'll probably have to correct myself in next episode, but I believe it was 90% of the audience is white because 90% is the what the narratives are. Like the narratives are 90% white. Mm-hmm. Um so that the audience affects how the publishing industry is. But if you are producing more and publishing more black narratives, then you don't have to reinforce this logocentrism, which is uh, essentially a, a term Derrida coined that was creating uh, meaning through text. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe Derrida said something about it anyway. Um, so if you're creating meaning through text by only publishing white authors or predominantly white authors so much so that it's nine-tenths of the entire book industry, then what are you saying? Exactly. That's where your figures are coming from. If you say black stories um, should get lower advances because they don't do as well on the market, well, that's because the market has dictated that white stories matter more. Um, And you can see the same systemic issues in education with... Uh, funding that you get based off of uh, standardized test scores or how insurance rates are higher for black people because black people get more tickets. But if you have police officers (laughs) saying that they should look for people of color to give tickets to, they will historically have higher fucking rates. Exactly. So So, yeah, I'm just saying let's blow our bridges up and start something new and I don't mean that literal violence like I think we can do it in in smart ways and you know sometimes I don't know yeah I don't know if anyone does I think we're parsing it we're figuring it out but this conversation with you has been pretty nice yeah yeah thanks it's been nice with you too Mm -hmm. and with all our uh, listeners Mm -hmm. I think this is a great place to stop because I'm getting sleepy yeah (laughs) yeah Um, and so You'll hear from us soon. Um, we're hoping to have a new episode. Uh, I would like one soon. next week, but we're not promising that. But yeah. I'd love to have an LGBTQIA plus episode just since it's Pride. Pride yeah. Um, so we're going to try our best. Um, and yeah, thank you so much again uh, for all the support. Um, and Bailey, do you have anything else you might want to add? No, I think it's... Time for you to give our sign-off, Donald. Really? Yeah. By myself? Yep. Uh. So until next time, Afida Zane. See you later.
Are you going to make me say it? Yeah, I said I was. See you later, ally gators. And now I know you're serious. <laughs>